Welcome. This is Anastasia Glova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Be sure to log on to our website, www.cato.org, for a full archive of our podcast as well as many other audio offerings. Today's podcast concludes the two-part series with Marcos Kosmolitsas of DailyCoast.com. Don't forget to follow the discussion with contributions from Bruce Reed of the Democratic Leadership Council, American Prospects Editor-at-Large Harold Meyerson, and Reason Magazine's Editor-in-Chief Nick Gillespie, all online at www.cato-unbound.org. So we already talked a little bit about what makes a libertarian Democrat. Now let's get into the nitty-gritty of our disagreements. For example, let's talk about the Democratic track record. The last administration was full of abuse between Waco, Clinton's military interventions, and Janet Reno. And during this administration, only one senator, Russ Feingold, voted against the Patriot Act. What do you say to that? The reason one senator voted against the Patriot Act, that's the easy answer, is because Republicans had created a political climate where criticizing the administration on anything having to do with the war on terror was akin to treason. So they did so, and in a lot of ways ratified the fact that they were weak. And there's no doubt that the Democratic Party has been weak these last few years. I hope that changes in large part because of the type of Democrats that were working to get elected, people like John Tester, in 2006. So that wasn't necessarily a failure of ideology. It was a failure of political will. If you polled those senators privately, I'm sure the vast majority of those Democrats would have preferred to have voted against the Patriot Act. They just were too afraid and too weak to do so. That says a lot of things. <laughs> Nothing, you know, very good. But it does mean that, ideologically, that's not a disagreement. Now, on the issue of Clinton, you can go back and forth. I mean, you can see the fact that he actually did shrink the size of government. You can see the fact that he actually balanced the budget, that he lived within our means. Janet Reno did good things and did bad things. So you can get into a nitty-gritty defense of it. But at the end of the day, government is government. You're going to have certain abuses. Certainly, we've seen nothing in the Clinton years that holds up to even some of the more mild abuses that we've seen in the Bush years all across the board. So I'm not going to defend Bill Clinton. And from a liberal basis, you know, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of ways, a lot of things that we can criticize Bill Clinton for. But ultimately, if you want to do a comparison, I don't think Bill Clinton comes anywhere near George Bush in the realm of personal abuses. You optimistically argue that government is the only way to check corporate power. Don't you think that separation of economy and state is the best way to end corruption and corporate welfare? I know that's a popular argument with libertarians. It just does not make any sense to me. You have a situation in Hong Kong, which has about as close to a libertarian ideal of separation between government and business, almost no government regulation, and the whole territory is now wrecked by financial scandals. There's no reason for business to act ethically without there being outside forces forcing that upon them. Sometimes it's market forces, and when that's possible, that's preferable, but sometimes there's no way to run, and you have to have a certain amount of government intervention. As an investor, if I'm going to invest in the stock market, I need accurate data and information. And if I don't have accurate data and information, I can't actually make rational market-driven investment decisions. And that's something that the government does theoretically protect via regulation and reporting guidelines. So there has to be a certain amount of regulations to protect my ability as an individual to make rational market-driven decisions. And at the end of the day, I'll take the market over the government when possible, and when that's not possible or feasible, then government's the only other option. I agree that the government has been instrumental to building important infrastructures and developing the Internet, providing Americans with an education. But is it possible that the private sector can also provide all these things even more efficiently? Sometimes. Sometimes it's possible. It's not black and white. It's not either or. 
Sometimes the market is a better mechanism. Sometimes the government is a better mechanism. I used to be in favor of tougher antitrust regulations against Microsoft. Now I realize that, at least in the tech sector, the market is so fluid and evolves so quickly that a monopoly this year doesn't beat squat next year. Google may be the dominant player right now. In two years, Google may be a, still a big corporation, but may have been passed up by the next greatest and latest technologies. So I realized that in that regards, it was actually better to let the market play out. I just don't think it's as simple as either or. I mean, there's a time and place for everything. And I think anybody who really looks at this stuff from a practical standpoint should realize that the market can't always protect us and can't always protect personal liberties. And when that's the case, then let's get government involved, but only when that's the case. And I think both parties have been too quick to resort to regulation when, in fact, market-based solutions may be the better option. Beyond your support for civil liberties and opposition to the war, did you part ways with libertarians on almost every issue, and especially on redistributive programs? So would Democrats make some concessions on that? Well, I mean, on things like government regulation, I guess it's a matter of degree. I do recognize that there's a time and place for some government intervention, not as often as maybe is currently the case. You know, So I'm closer to the libertarian position than I am to maybe the status quo doesn't mean that I'm a full libertarian. A lot of it is a matter of degree. A lot of it is just a matter of practicality. There's some things that are political possibility and reality and some things that politically will never fly and never be possible. So you work with the system that you have to create the best possible solutions. You know, if you're talking about concessions, you know, again, it goes back to this notion that we're pandering to libertarians trying to bring them along. I think what I've been working on is to kind of clearly state out, and this is all a work in progress, but I want to kind of clearly out this new breed of Democrat who isn't as interested in government regulation as a first resort, who isn't as quick to resort to a nanny state, who is quick to embrace all ten of the Bill of Rights and embrace notions of privacy and personal rights. This is not designed to appeal to traditional libertarians. We're not trying to win them over. This is what we are doing to create a new coherent libertarian-like philosophy inside the Democratic Party. Now, if we are successful and it becomes kind of the ascendant wing of the Democratic Party and we get lots of libertarian Democrats elected and have a fair amount of influence in policy and in government, then I think libertarians will realize that we're the better option of anything out there. But we're not doing this to get libertarians to vote for us. I mean, if I was trying to get libertarians to vote for us, my argument would be simple at this point, and that would be divided government actually uh, works better for libertarians than any government that's dominated by a single party. That's a practical argument that I would use if I was trying to get libertarians to vote for us. But I'm not. I'm trying to really clearly stake out a position inside the Democratic Party for what I'm calling the libertarian Democrats. But reforming these redistributive programs is actually a very fundamental libertarian goal, so I don't see how the libertarian Democrat is any different from a typical left liberal. You know, it kind of amuses me that, you know, just a couple of questions ago, you talk about how Bill Clinton was terrible for libertarians, and yet one of his signature accomplishments was the reform of welfare, which is one of these redistributed programs. If we're talking about Social Security, if you're talking about Medicare and Medicaid, if you're talking about unemployment insurance, you go down the list, these things are going to be a core part of the Democratic Party, and they're wildly popular with the American public for a reason, because it provides a certain amount of security. and Personal security is just as important to having the liberty to live one's life and do your all-American pursuit of happiness and liberty. So you can't get rid of those, and we'll never get rid of those. I think politically, that's a third rail of American politics, and they should be, because they are good programs. 
traditional libertarians may chafe at that, and that's fine. I mean, that's a very valid difference of opinion, and it doesn't offend me in any way. But, I mean, they're not going to change, and that's definitely not something that libertarian Democrats are interested in changing, because we understand that personal liberty includes a certain amount of freedom from need or want. So we'll disagree, we'll disagree on that one, and I'll be really, really happy to disagree on that one. Now, about the social welfare programs to which you argue in your essay that Americans have a right, would Americans also have the right to opt out of those programs? Uh, sure. <laughs> well, you know, there's a certain amount. I mean, if opting out hurts the overall financial health of the program, then it becomes a problem because there is a certain notion of shared communitarianism in those programs in this country. I send my kids to private school. He's three years old, so there's no public school for three-year-olds. But... I'm still paying school taxes, even though he's going to a private school. I paid school taxes before I had kids. I don't have a problem because this is something that, as a society, we need to be properly educated to have the freedom to pursue those things that we need to pursue. So, again, I mean, it's a pretty dramatic difference in the worldview than the traditional libertarian, which is more focused on the individual against the community. I'm not like that. But what I do want is I want to be able to live my life in a way where I'm properly educated. I don't have to worry that if I'm old, I'm going to be left out in the street and be homeless. Those things aren't worries, so then I can actually pursue those things that I really care about, whether they be studies or certain business ventures and so on, without having the government unduly meddling in my life, without certain corporations invading my privacy and limiting my ability to grow financially, start my own businesses. It's definitely a different worldview, it's a different frame, and I don't think we're ever going to really bridge that gap. So if people are offended about the fact that they have to put money into Social Security to provide a social net for society, that's fine. You know, I personally am not. I'm more concerned about people who are invading my personal space or limiting my ability to lead my life the way I want to lead it, and that's why I'm a libertarian Democrat and not a libertarian. So pursuing those freedoms, you do realize, requires an imposition on other people's freedoms, and that's the fundamental difference here between traditional libertarians and libertarian Democrats. You can say that about anything. I mean, if we don't fund government and there's no police force and you have roaming gangs of thugs, then your freedom to not want to pay taxes infringes my freedom to have a safe neighborhood and a safe life. I mean, no matter what you do, you're going to infringe upon somebody. So the question is, what is the infringement? Where is it going to come from? And what's the best way to limit those infringements, and when there is infringement, that it's done in a way that actually furthers your ability to lead your life the way you want it to lead, the way you want to live it. So, I mean, that's the difference. There's no way you can have a functioning society without some form of government or without some form of infringement. So let's create one that's safe, that gives people the opportunity to lead their lives the way they want to lead them, and ultimately, at the end of the day, infringes the least amount on your personal space. Is there anything else you'd like to add in response to the other three essays posted on Cato Unbound? It's interesting because the debate has kind of shifted into Cato land, which sort of implies that there's a kind of a concerted campaign to lead libertarians in. And this is a battle that I'm going to be actually fighting inside my own party for a long time. What libertarians think or say are almost irrelevant when we're trying to bolster and promote this new wing, and this is fairly a new wing, inside the Democratic Party. This is almost an internal matter that is getting a lot of attention elsewhere. Once we get our own house in order, then maybe we can start really bringing this debate out and engaging traditional libertarians on the issue. But right now, I'm more thinking about looking inward on this and trying to create a culture and an environment inside the Democratic Party where we're really concerned about personal liberties 
above and beyond some of the things that have driven traditional democratic thinking in the past few decades or even the last century. If you enjoyed this program, consider subscribing to Cato Audio, a dynamic 60-minute monthly recording that brings you inside the Cato Institute for highlights from exceptional one-of-a-kind lectures and events on key issues of the day presented by nationally known scholars, authors, and political leaders. Cato Audio is available on our website as well as on iTunes and audible.com.